Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Midtown Atlanta, it's time for Health Connect South Radio. Now here's your host, C.W. Hall. Good morning, everyone. It is C.W. Hall, your host here on the Health Connect South Radio Show. Thanks for making us a part of your day today. Episode 75 It is our first show back after the 2016 Health Connect South event we just completed last week at the Georgia Aquarium. It was a great success. Well over 400 people in attendance to learn about how innovations are tackling a wide range of some of the top disease states that are affecting folks around the globe and in our country, um, including cancer, lung disease, cardiovascular disease, uh, HIV, and uh, and others. And I had the opportunity to sit down with some of the uh, attendees and a a handful of the speakers from the event, including uh, this gentleman, Mr. Dan Cerruti. He's a vice president with IBM Watson Health. He was part of a panel that was discussing how Big data can have an effect in health, where it is today, where they see things going with regards to how to best utilize the data that we have, the massive quantities of data that we have, much of which currently isn't in a very readily used structure, such as notes written by a physician or typed by a physician in an electronic medical record. So coming up here is Dan Cerruti, IBM Watson Health. Check it out. I'm here at the 2016 Health Connect South event, and I'm sitting down with a vice president of Population Health, Cognitive Decision Support for IBM Watson Health. Dan Cerruti is with me. He was part of a panel earlier today talking about the place of big data in healthcare and what, if anything, it can do to impact our outcomes. So thanks for taking a minute to, to talk about what you're trying to do. My pleasure. And Dan, we were talking about the fact that big data and its place in healthcare and what it can be done to affect our outcomes using this data. We talked about the fact in our discussion on the, in the panel that there was volumes of data generated around my care as a patient, but much of it I can't necessarily easily use in the context of a database where mm-hmm. I just ask it a question that gives me all this information back. Talk about what we're trying to do around big data with regards to IBM Watson Health. So with Watson Health, our our goal long-term is nothing short of saving lives by providing data and cognitive insights, what we call cognitive insights, to people who care for people to make a difference. And and we believe that unleashing the the, the enormous volumes of data that exist and will continue to uh, be created is key, is one of the enablers to helping people, as I said, improve their health and, and help caregivers improve the care that they give, right? So, but, but it's not just the data, it's the analytics on top of the data, and then it's the application of those a- analytics, insights, in context, uh, in care management tools, in, in, in tools that, um, that are used by, again, a wide array of, of folks who, who care for people. So, so these are clinical care providers, mental health care, care providers, community care providers, social workers, and patients. Patients. We ourselves have a thirst for information about our health. And, um, and if we're not given it by our care providers, we're going we're gonna to search the web, we're going to Google, and we're going to look around, and we're going to try to learn. Right? We also have biomedical feedback devices, wearables, that are providing an incredible amount of information, and we want to know what, what that's about, and we want our care providers to see that data, 
right? So there's sort of one picture of me. So, so one of the things that we are trying to do is develop technologies to first gather and aggregate data, which is a non-trivial problem, right? The information about a person is spread out in a number of different systems, mm -hmm. and it's, it's a large volume of data typically, right? Uh, the, the kind of data that normal human beings or most human beings can't deal with, right? But computers are very good at this, and Watson is really, really good at this, especially unstructured information, what we call textual information, right? So, so even in um, EHRs, there's a, a large volume of the information in an EHR, inside a hospital or practice system, which is in unstructured form. So mm -hmm. every note that a doc, doctor makes or a nurse makes or a radiologist uh, interprets or a, a, almost any aspect of care involves some sort of progress note or interpretation or right. assessment. That information is typically in unstructured form. And, and for years, computers did not do a very good job of understanding and take advantage of, of, of that kind of data. And with Watson, we can read, and I say that in quotes, uh, Watson can, can ingest all of that information instantly, effectively, and find the bits that matter, that are relevant to a caregiver at that point in time uh, with that episode, you know, with whatever disease state that the, uh, the clinician is dealing with at that time. So, so we can transform care. We can oh, literally transform care. Over time, I've, I've had the opportunity to meet a number of technology companies that are coming up with solutions that interact with and essentially plug into the EMR, giving an, an additional level of capability to the EMR that it doesn't already possess. Is that what we're talking about here from, from this perspective, that you become an analytics engine that kind of supercharges what the EMR is capable of? I think that's one aspect of it. I, I think taking advantage of the data that's in an EMR and providing, providing insights in the context of the workflow is one important aspect. But we have to realize that most of the information about me, about a human being, is not in the EHR. So I want people who are caring for me to see a much bigger picture of me. I want them to understand that I have stress at home, that I, that, that I have a mental health condition, that I have a substance abuse condition, that I'm unemployed, that I have transportation issues. And the, re the reason I'm not taking my meds is I can't get there to pick them up, right? And these um, are the things you're talking about that aren't in my record. Those are social determinants of health, and they have a, they have a tremendous... Um, I, I'd love you to understand uh, my level of exercise, right? My, my level of activity. Um, if I'm a, a diabetic patient, I'd like you to understand uh, my, the, what the monitors can tell you about my, my blood sugar levels, right? So there are, um, there's lots and lots of information. Genomic markers and genetic information mm -hmm. is another large... Again, a, a big data, right? The key word is big, right? The, the, the large volume of data, uh, I, want, I want people who care and help me with my health, and I want me. I want to understand uh, everything I can about my health, and I want very intelligent software systems to help me make good decisions, right? And I want that stuff to be on my mobile device, right? And, and so it's very, you know, care going forward is, it, it should be and, and will be, I believe, a much more collaborative process. Right, where the, where the doctor is my coach and, and, and the expert helping me make, make the right decisions for my health, helping me, you know, allowing me. This data will allow consumers and patients to take control of their own health, which is what, which is what most of us want. So, so there's, a lot, there's a lot we can do, starting with data and analytics. I thought it was interesting talking about the fact that the, can the data from wearables really make a big difference in my health? And part of the discussion kind of talked about the fact that in some ways, that's not necessarily 
the most important part. Me wearing the Fitbit, someone in the, dis- in the discussion was talking about their wife finishing the day's steps for their Fitbit to be re- achieving their goal. It doesn't necessarily mean 10,000 steps had a particular value, but it certainly changed the individual behavior who's using it. That's and right. it seems to be that that is also coming into play with regards to our outcomes. But it'd be nice for my provider to know, my healthcare providers to know that I'm doing that. That's right. Transparency. So this is another very important aspect of changing health and changing care, which is, which is a consumer, uh, a, a patient, a person, uh, taking responsibility for their health. And, and that, that requires behavioral change, right? Most of the, I should say, many of the chronic illnesses that we battle in the U.S. and, and, and some of the illnesses that cost us a lot, right? Things like type 2 diabetes and, and, and a lot that's associated with obesity, right? These are, these are problems that, that the medical community knows how to deal with, yes. right? The issues exist with human beings right. not doing the right thing, not making yes. good choices, right? So it's, it's about behavioral change, right? right? Now, that behavioral change is also part of the way clinicians and caregivers deal with us, Right. Docs have to operate, uh, have to um, you know, act differently. We have to act differently. And information and transparency information, to your point, right? Data about me should be uh, you know, made available to my clinicians, and what the clinicians know about me should be available to me, right? And, and, and that, you know, what, what I think of as the democratization of information about health, right, is crucial to enabling behavioral change. Because as you said, my wife is also a big-time Fitbit user, and she will stay up trying to get to 10,000 <laughs> steps or, or, you know, fund 25 flights or whatever it is, right? So it has modified her behavior and when I, in a good way and, and in a conscious way. And the two things I attribute to that are, are the information, the transparency. She sees the information, right? Yes. And the second part is a, a little bit of competitive community. Right. So there's other, she has friends who are encouraging her, yes. right. And they're competing with, but it's a healthy, it's a healthy kind of competition. But that's right? a culture in and of itself Absolutely. that's developing with it. Absolutely. Yeah. And much and, like we have bad, bad culture that sends me to Burger King. Right. This culture is sending me out on the trail. That's right. And, and it's, but, but, at the, but at, at its core, it's information. You know, we, we didn't order people to act a different. I mean, docs have been telling people not to smoke for 50 years, right. Uh, and not to eat and not to overeat and exercise more, et cetera. But we do what we do, but, but, but so ultimately behavioral change is up to the individual and information is what can help them. It's not a cure-all, it's not magic, but information, data, you know, and, and actually we should, we should make sure that people understand the difference. Data is data. Data is raw facts, if you will. Information and insights are what change people's thinking. So, so, so turning data into insights that can cause behavioral change is what will change outcomes. <clears throat> how is the Watson Health platform, how is it deployed? Who's deploying it? How are they putting it to use? Uh, in a wide variety of ways. Right? So the Watson Health platform is a broad platform that in all cases starts with data and then, and then adds um, rich analytics and capabilities that we develop. Typically, we tune and train Watson. So we have, we start with use cases. Right? We start with uh, problems that people want to solve. And then we think deeply about the data required to solve those problems. And then we develop applications with our partners, almost always with partners, that address that I- individual problem. And then we pilot these kinds of solutions. And, 
and, and we're working with, um, with Medtronic on diabetes and Memorial Sloan Kettering and MD Anderson on cancer treatment and um, Mayo Clinic on clinical trial market uh, matching and a host of life sciences, biotech companies, pharma companies. So is that to handle variety. their data, analyzing data that they're producing? What is the, what is the role? The role is generally it is about providing analytics around data. And um, in fact, it's always the case. And, and sometimes this is data that a company has uh, in, in their data stores. And, and sometimes it's data that's outside the system. So for instance, the, the wide variety of medical health literature is not held by any given hospital, right? right? Uh, it's available, right? And so we, we, get, we get access to that information. Sometimes it's that, that's, a, that, you know, that's a challenge, right? And we, and we put it into a Watson system, and Watson ingests it and makes sense of it, right? Uh, for each application. Right? Each application can be a little bit different, right? So, so the gathering and aggregation of information is a big job unto itself, right? And, and any hospital system um, doesn't have adequate information about most of the patients because most of us see multiple providers. Yes. Right? And then there's claims information, right, w- which is available from our insurance companies, which sometimes we have a couple different insurance companies, um, plus Medicaid and Medicare. So, so, so the aggregation of information is in itself a, a tough job. But, but we're, what we're ultimately about is developing solutions <clears throat> on top of the data, on top of the analytics um, that change behavior and... Uh, and improve care and cost. Do you see us soon having the ability to begin to have, for lack of a better way to describe it, a data lake, if you will, that doesn't necessarily say it's CW Hall, that this individual's, all of this information that you're talking about, the patient data behind my existence up to this point that's on record, do you see that being able to flow into a data lake that can then be queried, look for patterns, you know, be able to dial back into my history and, and, and say, oh, this was the point where we might have been able to see. So for the next person, we can get predictive with, with, this indivi- with these groups of individuals. So, so yes. yes. So yes. Uh, and, and, and we ironically use the word data lake, right? So we create data lakes from wide varieties of data. But we do have to be very careful about um, personal health information right. and regulatory issues and privacy issues and security issues, right? So... So that's something we, IBM, are, are very good at, right? So um, there will be, uh, there's many ways to think about it, but there's, there'll be many data lakes, right, for, for different purposes. But at the end of the day, um, I believe that CW Hall's, the information about you, and, and there's two versions of it. There could be a de-identified version, mm-hmm. which is made available for research yes. in large aggregate population warehouses, and that's good. But, but the information used to care for you, right, is, is, is personalized, you know, personalized uh, information. And that information is ultimately going to reside in someplace like a Watson cloud where people trust it. And a lot of information about you is going to be available, hopefully everything, right, uploaded to the cloud. And then um, the applications and solutions will access that information. And then, and then a host of other information about health and medicine and and uh, drug disclaimers and drug-drug interactions and new therapies and clinical trials and everything that's important, right? So, again, data is the enabler, but it's just the start. One of the things that Health Connect South is all about is, and they probably talked about it throughout the day, is breaking down silos, bringing together resources that will make things move faster, initiatives such as the ones you're working on. When you look around uh, 
your environment and, and, and what you're trying to achieve. Are there resources out there that you wish you had access to as you sit around your meeting and talk about if we had partnerships with or collaborations with this sort of resource that perhaps it would move what you're trying to do along more quickly? We always want to work with more people uh, on more problems. There's no end to what we believe we can do and what we want to do. Um, but at the same time, we have limited resources, even though we are a, a very large uh, company and a large organization. But uh, we prioritize our opportunities and use cases and efforts, and we, uh, and we knock them down one at a time. So, but your point about alignment and connection, I think, is very important. This is a wonderful event, right? This is an event. I, I came here because I, I saw uh, an opportunity uh, not, not for IBM, but for health and f for, for people who care about health to connect, which has you know, it's an appropriate name, right? So you're bringing together at this, uh, at this event uh, folks from all walks of, um, of health care, if you will, right? Um, academic folks, uh, people who pay for care, people who provide care, technology, startups, et cetera. And, and, and that's what it takes. Um, and, and I believe this, this is a microcosm, a microcosm of what it takes in the real world, right? Um, no, no care provider, no community-based organization, certainly no technology vendor like IBM can solve this problem. We need alignment between the people who pay for care, which includes, and led by governments, yes. right? So Medicaid and Medicare is a huge piece of, of the budget of care in the U.S., right? Uh, federal and state, state governments. Um, Laparte uh, private payers, uh, large self-insured payers, right? So the people who pay for care, which includes us, consumers, right? Yeah, more yeah. and more out of our pocket every day. So we have to align. The providers of care have to break down the barriers and align. Uh, the data needs to cross providers, right? And, 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 and so one of the visions we have is a single view of the patient, right? Single view of the patient data. And that means uh, getting data from a number of the institutions that I just described. But everybody, everybody wants to do the same thing. They all want to do the right thing. And, and so I believe this infrastructure will be built and the data will be gathered and the analytics will be applied and more and more creative solutions will be developed by us, by our partners, by, by people all over, the, all over the world, all over the country. And, and so we can sort of raise this bar. The good news is uh, we've got nowhere to go but up. Right? I mean, <laughs> the system is not in great shape right now. The, the cost is not sustainable. Yeah. Everybody knows it. We've got the government behind us. So it's a good time to be in, involved in health, and, uh, and we're happy to be involved in health. So. What's a good place for folks to get information about the Watson Health Initiative? Uh, IBM, start IBMWatsonHealth.com. I mean, I, IBM is a big company, and there's a lot of information about what we do. We're doing all kinds of good stuff. Uh, so it's been, it's been a pleasure to be here and a pleasure talking to you. Well, I've enjoyed having it. Dan Cerruti, Vice President of Population Health and Co Cognitive Decision Support, IBM Watson Health. Thanks for taking some time. My pleasure. Have a great Thank event. Thank you. We'll see you. I also had the opportunity to sit down with Jim Schwabel. He is a gentleman that was a part of the first Health Connect South event. That's where I actually met him three years ago. At that time, he was working on the, the launch of NeuroLaunch, which is an incubator that helps accelerate the successful coming to market for innovators in the space that are dealing with a number of neurologic diseases, stroke, autism, other behavioral health 
issues for device companies and and technologies that are coming up through that space. They help uh, those get to market uh, often successfully through their efforts by pairing them up with uh, clients that have a problem that those technologies can solve uh, and uh, providing them with mentorship along the way as well. In this case, he is now working on a company called Neurolex Diagnostics. It's actually going to be able to take advantage of high-quality voice analytics to be able to potentially tell whether or not someone is on their way to uh, developing a psychotic break, uh, other behavioral medicine type issues that might be affecting a patient simply by having them read passages uh, and and recording and analyzing their voice, uh, both from phrasing as well as the wavelengths around it. So coming up, here's a, a chance to sit down and talk to Jim Schwabel about what they're doing with Neurolex Diagnostics. We're here at the 2016 Health Connect South event at the Georgia Aquarium, third year in a row, and actually three years ago at the first event at the Woodruff Arts Center, I met Jim Schwabel just after he had started NeuroLaunch. They were there making introductions and letting people know about this cool thing that they're doing, accelerating innovation within the neurology space, technologies around a number of different neurologic diseases and some devices that were doing some very cool things. And and from what I understand, Jim, yep. over the last year or so, you've launched into a new project and it sounds like it's doing some pretty interesting things. So thanks for taking a couple of minutes to sit down and talk about it. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, uh, CW, for the intro. So so yeah, we uh, we just launched uh, a new company called Neurolex Diagnostics. And at a high level, what we do is it, instead of going to the primary care doctor and taking a blood sample or urine sample, we're taking a sample of speech from a patient. We, we're creating reports sort of like a blood test for physicians to interpret to detect things like mental health conditions. You could think depression. You can also think uh, about neurology conditions like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. And so uh, we're trying to use speech as a biomarker for, for human health. And uh, we believe with a lot of the research studies being published in this space, it's a good time. Um, for example, uh, a paper was published uh, last year in NPJ, which is Nature's Schizophrenia Journal, uh, which showed that you can use just a speech task, like asking a patient, how is your day-to-day from a nurse in a psychiatric office, um, and, and transcribe that speech and extract three features from the speech from the patient and determine whether or not uh, that patient was likely to develop a psychotic break or not with almost 100% accuracy. Um, and so... We think that these models are very accurate, um, and especially looking at machine learning models in the space, um, it's it's a great time to do that. So um, and so, yeah, it's very excited about it. It's a great time, and, and uh, looking forward to building this company in Atlanta. What what led to this? I mean, what made somebody think? I wonder if my speech pattern would tell tell me something about my health. How did this come about? So for me, it started about five or six years ago. Uh, my brother had a psychotic break. So that was originally my motivation. Uh, I started receiving text messages from him that were increasingly incoherent. And so, um, you know, I was one at, at first shocked when he first had a psychotic break. And, and then immediately I was like, what can you do to prevent this? And so um, it got me really curious. Are there signatures within text messages or voicemails in the phone that you could use to predict the onset of a psychotic break? And it seemed like you could. I started seeing his messages were shorter. Uh, they also became increasingly rambling. They're disconnected. And, and when I looked deeper into the disease and, 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 and progression of uh, psychosis, I, I realized 
and I, 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 that this was actually a primary feature of the disease. And so um, I was looking for papers in this space for a number of years. And so when I came across that NPJ article, I immediately knew, let's start a company. Let's create a platform company. Let's create a company around using speech for health generally. Let's start in psychosis and really see patients avoid going to the hospital. So that's really where, where I started and was motivated in doing this. Where are you now? From what I understand, you're in the early stages. You're starting to recruit people to participate, to provide speech patterns for you to be able to assess against their health histories and so forth. Talk about what you're doing right now with it. Yeah, so we have a few uh, pilots we're working on. Um, one of them is, is just getting some samples of speech from, from individuals adjusted for age and gender. So we're trying to create reference ranges for speech samples from, from just people generally. And, and our goal is to create just general health reports. Um, we might be able to, for example, determine just from speech that you give uh, or, or some voicemail data what, how many hours you've slept uh, or, or perhaps <laughs> if you're, you're tired or not, whether you're stressed. Um, so we're starting out more in general uh, fashion with consumers because it seems like a lot of people are really fascinated and interested mm-hmm. in this space. And we're using that data to establish reference ranges and then doing specific studies uh, that are funded hopefully by NIH uh, or other grant providing organizations to really build FDA approved diagnostics uh, for use for, in physician offices and clinics um, with the goal for it to go into primary care. Obviously, it's going to take some time for that to happen. Uh, but uh, I, I think if you look at some of the models that, that have been published, it'd be great if, if primary care physicians had a new tool in their toolkit to measure some of these conditions early instead of going to 10 different specialists, um, there might be, say, a psychosis assay to order uh, kind of like a blood panel uh, to see if there's risk and, and then a, make a referral. Um, similarly, sleeping disorders, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, a lot of these conditions are made ad hoc uh, referrals based on symptoms. And uh, we think if there's some objective signatures um, and we had reference ranges adjusted for age, um, it's a good place to start. And so we'd love for anyone listening to go to our, uh, our alpha uh, sign up. It's pilot.neurolex.co. Um, and uh, we're looking just for alpha users to really get feedback. Um, we're, we're designing sort of an alpha product. Uh, we have a, sort of a limited distribution of that. And we'd love to engage anyone interested. So, From the perspective of other types of partnerships, Obviously, you, you've been around Health Connect South the whole time that it's been in existence in terms of how it's trying to bring people together. Are there outside of your participants who will help you through, you know, acting as early stage uh, participants that can provide some voice signatures for you to evaluate? Beyond that, are there other, other either research partnerships or resources that you would hope to be trying to identify that might be able to help you? Or are you Absolutely. There. Absolutely. Um, we're always looking for business development partnerships, uh, both in research and with other startups, uh, as well as we're seeking capital. So if there's any investors out there passionate about mental health, we'd love to, to pitch to you specifically any seed funds or angel investors. Um, there's a lot of family foundations in Atlanta uh, specifically uh, focused in this space. Um, and, so, uh, and so in terms of investors, yeah, we're really interested in that. But in terms of uh, research partnerships, we've been always actively looking for uh, research partnerships around speech uh, feature extraction. So anyone in the area of machine learning and speech analysis and feature extraction, uh, specifically in the area of extracting things like fundamental frequencies, uh, formant frequencies, spectral powers, and just signal processing expertise. Uh, We've been looking for that uh, always in our company because 
it's a very small number of people in the world that know how to do that well. <laughs> uh, and also from the startup angle, um, one of the biggest things about what we have is that there could be false positives. And so we've always thought about, you know, if, if somebody seems like they're having a psychotic break, how do you know for sure it's psychosis and not something else if it's comorbidity? And so we've thought about pairing this with, say, genetic uh, tests. Yeah. So we've been looking for partnerships with genetic testing companies. Uh, we also have looked at MRI imaging, imaging technologies to pair with speech. And our goal is to create sort of these development agreements where we can maybe enhance the accuracy of our diagnostic with pairing it with some other technology. Um, and so that's, I think, a benefit to our model is that if we build the speech test and pair it with X, the accuracy may go up and we might have a joint licensing agreement or some sort of licensing deal to make it a win-win uh, in terms of revenue. With regards to the people that you're looking for to provide that alpha user contribution in this phase, is there a particular person that you're looking for? Do they need to have either a clean health record? or No, no, absolutely. Anybody? Anyone. Um, we're looking for anyone. And, and that's, uh, we, we sort of have our, our, our sign-up form to, to screen for whatever somebody's interested in as a patient, caregiver, or just somebody interested about health reporting. What we found is that almost everybody that's been an alpha B user so far that's been signing up is just interested. I want to know more about my health. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of data out there, a lot of text data, a lot of voice data about me on my phone or on somebody else's phone. I want to use that information to really help uh, me understand my health and how I can be healthier. And so, um, and so we promise you if you sign up, we will, we will do our best to get you a report and, and give you that insight. Um, we're obviously in the formative phases, but um, we, we are doing some interesting things in this space. And so our goal is just to get growth and get users and in turn use some of that normative data to do studies later for, for specific populations of patients. How far away do you think this type of technology is from being able to be put in the hands of healthcare providers? So I think um, it's probably two to three years away from FDA approval. There's some challenges with FDA approval in this area. Uh, the first is that there's really no predicate device. When you ask yourself, what technology is out there that is similar, <laughs> right? Yeah. You ask yourself the question, and um, I've looked through the FDA database. There isn't really a predicate. So this is probably going to be a de novo classification. And based on what I've seen is that there's a... Uh, probably 600 patient trial, you'd need a specific area to get an approval. And once you get one approval, you no longer need a de novo and you can go off a predicate. So the sample size may go down a little bit. But, um, and so it's, it's, it's a little more uh, difficult being a de novo devi- uh, class. But with that being said, I think speech is everywhere. It's easier to get recruitment. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can get multi-site trials set up quickly. Uh, we have partnerships in New York, Chicago, uh, S- San Francisco, uh, Portland, Oregon, um, and various other s- centers here in Atlanta um, to to really streamline clinical trial development and design uh, across multiple sites. And what's great about software uh, for anyone thinking about doing a company is that you can scale it and distribute it quickly. Mm-hmm. You don't have to go out and manufacture right. 500 med devices and, <laughs> and distribute them in patients. It's, oh, hey, hey, physician, let's, let's add this onto a protocol you're already doing research on. Uh, let's get some patients through some patients you're already working with um, and then distribute it through software, uh, say a local install and iOS device. So um, it's, it's the benefit uh, of being a, a software-oriented uh, machine learning-focused company. Share your website that you have one more time for folks if they want to try to get involved with the, the 
pilot or if they want to maybe become one of those investors you were hoping to find? Sure, absolutely. So uh, our, our main website is uh, www.neurolex, N-E-U-R-O-L-E-X.co. Pilot, if you're interested, we have a subdomain set up. It's pilot, P-I-L-O-T dot neurolex.co. So we'd be very interested to gauge anyone on the show that's interested to, to work with us. Um, if you're interested in invest, we have a contact form on our website. Happy to respond to that. Uh, or you can reach me on my email, which is uh, js.neurolex.co. So um, looking forward to hearing uh, your guys' feedback and, and uh, engaging you with what, our community. Certainly another great example of the type of healthcare experts that we find here at the Health Connect South event. Uh, if you've not attended one in the past, you want to make sure you get set up to go to either the next annual event, which will be, of course, next September. But uh, we've also had some regional events around the area, around the southeast here, too. So there's opportunities to be able to get out and expose whatever project that you're working on to others, just as Jim is doing here. And uh, we certainly appreciate you taking some time to sit down and talk about this. It's amazing technology. Absolutely. It's it's always a pleasure. <laughs> I love I love sharing this uh, with anyone. So I'm um, happy to grab coffee with anyone in Atlanta and, and go a deeper dive. So All right, man. Thanks so yeah, much. Thank you. All right. And many of the attendees at the event were surprised when they announced the uh, main speaker for the lunch break at the 2016 Health Connect South event. It was National Park Service's Dan Shook from the uh, Kitty Hawk Park there where the Wright brothers were known to take in their first flight and documented that process. He's got an amazing story. He's able to uh, explain and put a new perspective on just what they achieved by doing there some of the things that they overcame to actually solve the problems that allowed them to then go on to successfully fly. And then just a few years later, uh, was, at least one of them was actually able to watch a, a man land on the moon uh, within just a few decades of him actually helping us take flight to begin with. So check out Dan Shook. He was uh, a really great speaker and uh, took some time to sit down with me here at the event. We're here at the 2016 Health Connect South event held at the Georgia Aquarium, and I had the opportunity to sit down with Dan Shook from the National Park Service, came to, to talk about Kitty Hawk and the Wright brothers and how we took flight. And someone might say, well, how did you end up here at this Health Connect South event where we're talking about health innovations? Talk about how this came together. Sure. So um, at our park here at Wright Brothers, we have a talk every couple hours, and Russ Laparia uh, happened to be in my program, and he, uh, him and his wife, they started talking afterwards, and apparently I made a pretty big impression on them with the story I presented, and he called the Park Service about, it was about three weeks later and kind of fought with them a while to get me to come down here. It's not <laughs> easy. We have to go through lots of lines of federal stuff to get us to travel to different places away from our park and a few things happened along the way even driving down here it was almost impossible with the gas shortage that we had ah yeah and so but uh, i had made an impression on him and thought that the story of wilbur norville wright would really work down here at this audience their story is not just about airplanes it's that inspiration to cure the impossible dreams i thought that was a an interesting way to tie together the two stories of what the, the Wright brothers did and then what Health Connect South is trying to achieve here with health innovation and bringing together all these different disparate parties that sometimes can and should be collaborating or partnering up to make things happen a little more quickly. And you pointed out in your conversation how the Wright brothers 
had engaged others that were trying the same effort that they drew on their experiences and research that they had done to that point. Yep. The uh, rights, there was a man, his name is Otto Lilienthal. He was a German engineer. He was the greatest pilot we'd ever seen. You could call it a pilot gliding at that time, but he had jumped off his hill in Germany about 2,000 times. And suddenly on the 2,000th flight, he simply fell out of the sky and was instantly killed. And Wilbur was sitting at home and he realized of all the experts in the world, can't do this. Why can a simple nobody with some ideas, why can't he give it a try? And so that's when they wrote a letter to one of the poignant engineers at the time and just simply Wilbur stated his case that ever since he was a little boy, he had been afflicted with this belief that flight was possible to man. And it's not a man who's involved in aviation or engineering that's writing this letter. It's a man who is just a hobby at this point, describing his hobby he believes will be a disease that will kill him if he can't find a cure. And Wilbur Norville, throughout their, the first few years, they relied on all the data we'd always used because that's just the standard of flight. They weren't going to solve right. the standard of flight. They were going to go by the predecessing data. And the more and more they failed, they thought there was something wrong with it. That's when they simply went home and started believing themselves, built their wind tunnel, and they proved that the math was wrong. The math was good, but it was only off by a few percentages. And it only being off by a few percentages was enough to throw us out of the sky. What what element was it affecting? It was affecting the lift. So the shape were, of the wings? Yep, yeah. So the wings they were using were not providing enough lift. They'd only stay in the sky for a third of the time they thought they should. So they knew something was wrong with the math. Building that simple homemade wind tunnel showed them the proper curve of a wing. So they looked at it and they thought about how can we streamline this instead of going out to Kitty Hawk and attempting one machine every year and hurting ourselves, <laughs> what can we do? And that's when they realized, why don't we control the wind indoors? Why don't we build a wind tunnel? And by doing that, they made about 200 little wings and they tested 200 different shapes and designs using, I don't know how they did it today, using a broken saw blade and fish scales and bicycle wire. And they realized the proper curves called camber of a wing to use and that proper curve they discovered is just one fraction of a percent off what NASA is still using today. <laughs> you, you've been, you, you mentioned that you'd been a part of the National Park Service in the past. I mean, what would you say when you began to learn, you know, dig into the story of the Wright brothers, what for you was the most compelling piece that pulled you in? Well, so when we travel across to all these different parks in the Park Service, you work at a lot of parks for a kind of in the beginning of your career, and my degrees in wilderness and wildlife and parks itself. So I latched onto the story of Wilbur Norville and how they observe birds flying. And so that's what got me involved in the story, how I could, you can't have these stories be genuine if you can't find something you care about. And the more I would tell the story of this, and the more things that would kind of slip out of my mind every once in a while, I soon realized myself that it's not a story of flying. It's not a story of mimicking nature. It's that true human spirit of looking impossible in the eye and saying, so what? It's once I, one day the word impossible is just a word in a dictionary that means it hasn't been figured out yet, fell out of my mouth, <laughs> and I saw the reaction across the audience. I knew this is what this place means. It's pretty intriguing when you think about the, the short time span from their achievement to where we are now. And you talked about the fact that they're achieving those things now on such a scale that we don't even really, many of us don't even turn to, mm -hmm. to, to read a headline about it. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, once they did this, what's interesting about it is the United States had a man named Samuel Langley, and he was the chief of the Smithsonian. He was the smartest engineer we had, and he had spent 25 years of his life trying to fly. 
And his final flight using $50,000 of taxpayers' money was three days before Wilburn Orville flew. And he almost drowned the pilot instantly. And after that, he told the government of the United States that if you got a room full of the greatest engineers and mathematicians and they worked on this problem every day for a thousand years, we still wouldn't figure it out. <laughs> Five days later, Wilbur Norville Wright flew for the first time. And so after flying, just in their short lifetime, just two years later, the Wrights went from 852 feet to flying 30 miles of flight. And then Orville saw it all. Sound barrier, two world wars, That's rise and fall of nations. Mm. Well, I really appreciate you taking a couple of minutes to sit down with me here and share your your story and I know I could. I was standing in the back of the audience, and and uh, everybody was certainly hanging on what you had to say. I'm sure there were a lot of people go. You want to talk about the Wright brothers at Health Connect South? What's going on? Yep, I get that at the park every day. We <laughs> when I show the picture at the park, I say this photo. Most some of you were rated your entire life to come here, and some of you were drugged here today by that person in your family. But then once I change it up and show them the dramatic change of this photo's a death, then everybody gets into the story. So. It's one of those things that happened 113 years ago that we feel doesn't matter anymore, but it's, they're still impossible it everywhere, every day. It changed our world entirely. It, it really showed us that their true legacy is nothing is impossible. and It's not a matter if it's airplanes, cancer research, or just trying to climb to the top of a mountain. It's, nothing is. It just hasn't been figured out yet. Well, Daniel Shook with the National Park Service, I really appreciate you taking some time and, and for being a part of Health Connect South this year. Yep, thank you very much for having me. Great meeting you. Yep, thank you. Have a good, yep, great thanks. afternoon. I can tell you, man, it was an awesome event. I'm so pleased I had the opportunity to be a part of it there to meet some of the attendees as well as some of the high-profile speakers that were sharing their expertise with the crowd. Make sure you you get it on your calendar next year when they announce the date to be there, be a part of Health Connect South. You might just be one of those folks that either comes with a uh, technology or expertise that can lend itself to solving a particular health issue, or you might have connections within your network that could lead to the next big discovery or breakthrough. And how cool would that be? And if you're checking out the podcast for this week's episode, if you've not done so already, in the upper left-hand corner of the show page, you'll see the Apple logo there. That'll take you over to the iTunes store where the Health Connect South radio show podcast lives. And subscribe to us. That way, each week when the new episode comes out, it is there on your device waiting for you to listen to when it's convenient for you. We hope you turn around and share this information with your social media networks. Again, you might just be putting information out there into your community near at hand that ends up making a big difference in somebody's life. So we'll say thanks very much in advance to all the folks that put this out on the social media sites that they frequent, as well as any websites that you think might be relevant. All, all the folks over at Health Connect South, Russ and Shivani and Afsan and Rebecca and uh, the rest of the crew, Paul at Right to Market and their team, everybody really pulled together to make a great event this year. And uh, I want to say thanks so much for them for allowing me to be a part of it. We look forward to catching up with you all next week. We'll see you then.